This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unprofitable lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mike and Elizabeth. Beautifully read. We're yet to meet. My name's Nick. It is so wonderful to see you here. And I honestly promise you, we don't do this rebuke thing every week. Like just, (laughs) Alex, you're a rogue operator, but we love you. Happy birthday, my man. (laughs) Well, we've come to the end of our series in Titus. Um, From grace flows goodness. It's up there on the screen. And really, that's what we're going to try and capture in this last section. The, The last bit, you would have seen it, is all about what it means to live a life of doing good. That is essential and central to believing in Jesus and living for Jesus is to live a life of doing good for others. So before we jump into it, you know, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. In our busy pace, I don't think we often get a chance to just stop and reflect on where we are and where we're going. And I just want to give you a minute before we hear the Word of God for you to just pause. So this is like the one moment where I encourage you to get a phone out and start tapping away. If you want to write some notes down or you just want to pause and think, here's what I want you to think through. What does your life look like right now? Are you content where you are? Are you content how you're living? With the things that you're paying attention to, the longings and direction of your life? Is it the way that you want to be living your life? If you could describe your life in a couple of words, what would it be? Just take a minute. It's not weird. We're all sitting quietly, but take a minute. God is God. We want to let Him be the one to dictate our life and direct where we would go. And so I think it's really important that we stop and, and take, take stock of who we are and where we're going at times. So if you haven't got your Bibles open, you're going to want to do that. We're in Titus chapter 3. We're wrapping up the series. We're starting off at verse 8. The first thing that we're going to cover is that we do good in grace. The Christian life is that we are people who are doing good in grace. Look at verse 8. Paul says to Titus, this is a trustworthy saying. Whenever you see this in Paul, it happens every now and again. It's kind of like prepare for the truth bomb. 
Like, this is going to be the thing that you need to hear. You read through the Gospels, and Jesus says stuff like, truly, truly, I tell you, and you know, oh man, someone about to get rebuked right here. You know, this is a moment where you should pay attention. When you see that, it matters. And so Paul is saying, look at the verses that have just come before. If you hear last week, that's what was preached on from verse 3. Paul describes in incredible language, in a beautiful way, the heart of the Christian faith, the gospel. He says, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived. At one point we lived apart from God, and we may not have even known it, but we lived in this empty way, pursuing and seeking things to try and fulfill ourselves and live a life that would make sense, but we were always striving to try and find more, try and find more, until one day, verse 4, the kindness and the love of God appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now, if you've thought about it like this, but God knows you better than you know you. He knows every one of your thoughts, every one of your longings. He knows those things that you really don't want anyone to ever find out about. He knows those things that you try and hide from yourself. And it's in that context that God loves you. It's incredible. There is absolutely nothing like it. If anyone in this world could see me warts and all, I fear that they would turn tail and run as fast as they could. And yet God's love is so incredible that he doesn't just have love towards us in that moment, but he loves us so richly and so deeply that he gives everything that we need in Jesus. He dies in our place. He takes away our sin. And it says that he washes us through rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That He justifies us by his grace. But even better, at the end of verse 7, look at this. It says that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just leave us you know, forgiven, and then off we go. He says, you have become the firstborn, about to receive the inheritance. And I'm not just talking about enough money to buy a house in Sydney, which would be incredible. I'm talking about an eternity of everything you were made for. That is a trustworthy saying. Can I get an amen? Someone gave it to me. That's all I need. Right, and so you, you sit there and you go, okay. That's the thing. And now we're getting to the end of this letter. He's going to wrap it off, flowing off from the greatest part, the greatest truth, the greatest beauty. You're thinking, okay, what's the follow-on? This is it. This is like what comes after this. You know, verse 8, look, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that, what do you expect? If you understood the incredible beauty of that gospel, what do you expect the so that to be? So then we will go and we will reach the world with the name of Jesus. We're going to take the kingdom of light and we're going to banish the, 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 the demons and darkness and we're going to bring Jesus to the world. We're going, to, we're going to win the world for Christ. We're going to make sure that every person gets to know that this message is for them, right? That's what I expected. What does he say? I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Isn't that such an anticlimax? If you grasp the cosmic reality where the divine entered the earth and lifted you out of your darkness, you would do good. That's what he's saying here. If you've met Jesus, if you've been rescued and loved and cherished, and you live in that reality, we need to be careful then that we devote ourselves to doing what is good. My fear is that's not very exciting, and it's not very easily measured, 
And so we kind of just leave it in the end of the Titus letter and kind of move on with our lives. Of course, we need to reach the lost. It's an essential part of the gospel. Of course, we need to, to be living holy lives of not just um, doing good for others. We need to take care of our souls and, and the way that we live. All, all of that stuff's really, really important. But the quiet, mundane, day-to-day way that you live as a follower of Jesus, Paul is saying, is absolutely essential. We gravitate towards these big and beautiful, famous churches. The age of social media means we have access to these places we never would have seen before. We, we read stories of like these incredible churches where people are getting baptized, where there's ministries that you're like, I want to go and be a part of that. We get to podcast preachers who are the greatest of our generation, and you have access at a, a touch of a button. And so we have this expectation of what a good church looks like, and it's not what Titus gives us. It's not. The great irony is that we're drawn to the big, flashy, fancy version of church because it's out there and it's, and it's appealing, but what we should be attracted to, we're not because it's quiet and it's humble, and you don't know about them because they're busy serving people and loving and doing good and not letting anyone see it because all they care about is Jesus. We want to be a church like that. We don't want to be the bridge church where everyone's like, oh, yeah, the bridge. I go to the bridge church, you know. We're that church that everyone knows about, the Anglican church where people put their hands up and no one like, looks at them funny. It's, we're the bridge church. Like, we don't want to be that. We want to get down to the busy work of simply loving people being like Jesus, who didn't want the acclaim and the praise that everyone was offering him. He just wanted to get down with those who were in need and and provide for them and care for them. Is that who we are? I I think it is in so many ways, but we must make it the main game. We cannot forsake that this is so essential. We cannot gravitate to the impressive. We must live a life rooted so beautifully in grace that we just flow out in goodness. So that's step one. We do good from grace. Step two is we do good from abiding. That's going to make sense in a moment, but we do good from abiding. The language here when Paul starts talking about goodness, it's really interesting. If you have your Bibles open, in verse eight, he says, you know, those who have trust in God need to be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I just think that's really interesting language, right? That we want to be doing good, like Jesus, hidden life, obscure, don't let anyone see you, because we can generate some profit. We can increase our revenue, and we can reduce our costs, and we can add value to the kingdom. It just doesn't seem to line up. It seems, it seems odd, but that's, that's not necessarily what's going on here. The word does have a sense of profit in it, but for the most part, it just means beneficial, useful, It's so important that Christians devote themselves to doing what is good, because if you actually get down and just get on with the Christian life, you're useful for something. But when you just get busy and occupied with all of the stuff that doesn't matter, you're just wandering around and abandoning the call of Jesus on our lives. This is why doing good is so important. You come down to verse 14, and he's got another interesting language. He says, our people must learn to do good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Flip it. We need to be productive people. Again, part of me loves that, right? I don't know if you've heard of the 5 a.m. club. 
You heard of this before? It's nuts. There are people who willingly get up at like 4.30 in the morning. I don't think they shower because that's wasting time. And there are like these cafes that open just for these people. They don't talk to each other. They just bring their laptop. They go sit in the corner and they just go get on with work. They're like entrepreneurs and people that are trying to like conquer the tech world and all this sort of stuff. Part of me loves that, right? I just think, isn't that incredible? Like, what could we accomplish with the extra hours in our day? That's my picture of productivity. And it doesn't line up with what I think Paul's trying to say here. But as you look closely, the beautiful thing is it's not about productivity in terms of efficiency and output. It's productivity really in terms of fruit. The word here means fruitless. We're in danger if we don't focus on doing good. We're in danger of living a fruitless life. And if you're a student of the Bible in any sense, that should terrify you. Because when Jesus says, I am the true vine, you are the branches, he also says, and if the branches don't bear fruit, I will cut them off and throw them in the fire. This is serious. This is really serious. John 15 is going to come up on the screen. This is Jesus on fruitfulness. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. What does this mean? If we need to do good and not live fruitless lives, we need to be fruitful. So we don't sit down and devise an incredible ministry strategy of how we can maximize our goodness We don't try and create this, you know, different ministry that's going to go out over here and do all this stuff. We don't try and re-architect the way that we function as a church so that we can maybe have someone in charge of the goodness portfolio over here. We abide in Jesus. There is no fruit in your life or my life, in the life of the church, apart from being one with Christ. I love the old language of the King James, because instead of saying, remain in me as I remain in you, it would say, abide in me as I abide in you. It's got this sense of active finding yourself and placing yourself alongside Jesus. That is the great goal of the Christian life, because goodness flows from his grace. And our proximity to him and our connectedness to him is where the divine power takes hold of us and transforms us from the inside out And like a branch, we begin to bear all this incredible fruit. And we can't claim any of it for ourselves because it's entirely Jesus. So yes, we meet the grace of Jesus and that flows out into goodness. But the only reason it happens is because we are rooted deeply in Christ. Are you abiding in Jesus? Because that is the primary goal of your existence if you've met him. The famous passage on fruit. It's Galatians 5. It's going to come up on the screen. I'll say this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. And who is the Spirit? He is God within you. Too often we walk by the flesh, even as Christians, and instead we labor under slavery when the Spirit has set us free. And when we walk by the Spirit, in in His freedom, He starts to cultivate these things in us. We begin to change. We're no longer like we once were. I'm so glad none of you met me at 18 because you wouldn't believe it. 
what God has done in my life. And I'm not that far along the journey. It just speaks of how bad I was, right? If you have the Spirit at work in your life, He completely transforms us. It's incredible. So here's the key. Our fruitfulness comes from abiding, not from striving. Let me say that again. Fruitfulness comes from abiding, not from striving. Striving is an act of the flesh. We're in our own strength, our own blood and sweat and tears. We try to accomplish, achieve, produce, find something that we can point to and say, this means I mean something. I exist and matter because I can do X, Y, and Z. I have managed to build a life that is meaningful and useful. That's the world's picture of striving. But my revelation for today is you can strive even as a Christian and even in Christian ways. You can seek to do the work of God in the power of man. You can say all the right things, even do all the right things, but you can do it from a place of self-centeredness. You can do it from a place of distance from God. And I think that's why we have so many examples of hypocrites throughout, littered through the pages of Scripture. We cannot be a people who are distant from God. We cannot be a people who are striving. This came really clear to me a couple of weeks ago. I had coffee with another pastor. It was a real God moment. I'd never heard of this guy really before, but I listened to a podcast and just emailed the person that was on this podcast because I was like, that was pretty cool, encouraging. And she's a Christian local. So I was like, cool, I'll just send her an encouragement message. And like three minutes later, she replied. And I was in an Anglican identity and liturgy subject, which was fantastic, of course. But I was just like, I'm going to follow this email thread because that sounds a lot more fun. So I did that. And we just kind of emailed back and forth. And she was like, hey, there's this other pastor who's probably like 10, 20 years down the journey from where you are, really thinking through the same things, has wrestled with the stuff that you're wrestling with now can I connect you? And I was like, yeah, for sure. We got together, first, first win, he bought my coffee. What a legend. Anyways, we, we spent this time together, and it was just life-giving. So I realized we had actually been in the same church at different times, because he's a lot older, um, never at the same time, but we actually have this like weird shared history. And then as we sort of trace through our journey of what it's been like to serve Jesus in ministry, it's been this real similar sense of like wrestling with the need to perform and produce and build ministry and build successful, but always being drawn to this sense of abiding. And I'm just living with this tension. He's like, yeah, man, I was there. I've been there. This guy's gifted. If he'd continued in the trajectory that he was on, you'd know his name. You'd know his church. It would be something that people are talking about because it would have been impressive. But there was an active moment in his life where he said, that's not what Jesus has called me to. So now he pastors and leads a church entirely around being formed into the image of Christ. They canceled all their programs. I just think that's wild. They don't have a single program. Not one. You get up to MC for church. All right, the announcements for tonight are see you at church next week. Like, it's nuts. There are no programs. They just seek to follow Jesus. I'm not suggesting we do that, by the way. I don't know if I want that lack of structure, but I love the heart behind it. The thing that I walked away with, I don't know if he said this explicitly to me, but the thing I walked away was, Nick, stop striving. Stop trying to do it from your own strength. Stop trying to change everything all the time. Stop trying to be better and do better. Stop trying to accomplish. Stop trying to prove yourself. Just rest. Rest in God. You're in a busy season. You've got young kids. That's cool. God knows that. Take what you've got and abide in Him. Make that 
everything that you try to do every single day, the rest will follow. That was a really important word for me at a really important time, but I think it's an expansive word for all of us. I don't know what it is or what it looks like for you in your striving. I don't know your tendencies or the temptations that you have in your life or the pressures, but I can say with confidence, you must live from a foundation of resting and abiding and living in the presence of God. Because that is really all abiding means. Abiding is presence. Abiding is life lived with God. And of course, that's going to involve spiritual disciplines. We need to have moments anchored in the Word because that's where God speaks to us conclusively. We need set times of prayer because we need to just have those rhythms in which we force ourselves to spend time with the Lord. But I do think it's more than that. There's this sense of practicing the presence of God, that, that God is always with us. And I mean, we know that, we say that, we believe that as a theological truth. But if it's true, it's kind of extraordinary. The fact that when we were saved, we were saved in Christ. He is in us and we are in Him. We are one. Boom, that's incredible. But we just kind of keep living. The Holy Spirit lives within you. If you know Jesus, He is with you right now. And He'll never leave you or forsake you. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the God who made all things, dwells in you, in your life, with you, intimately. What would it look like if you knew that? You paid attention to him. You heard and sought his voice as you lived through normal everyday decisions. You know that the Father, after he forgives you of your sin in Jesus, he doesn't look at you with judgment. He's not sitting there, look, he stuffed it up again. He's just got love in his eyes. He just cares so deeply about you. So you don't need to go hunting for the presence of God. You just need to open your eyes to see him. You need to open the eyes of your heart to see him because he is here with us right now. He is at work right now in this moment. He may not give you this incredible mountaintop experience, but when we practice the presence of God, we just consistently and regularly and every single day turn our attention to him. We abide in Jesus, and that's where we allow him to cultivate the fruit so that we start to flow out into other people's lives. And when you start to practice this, you realize that God just puts people in your path. He just gives you the opportunities to do good. You start to look at your work and realize that there is such an incredible opportunity already afforded to you. You don't need to change anything. You just need to be aware. In step with the Spirit living in His power and with His presence. So we do good in grace. We do good from abiding. And lastly, this one will be quick. We do, no, we do. Doing good is difficult. We just got to, at the end of the day, we've got to own up to this. It's not easy to be a person who's committed to every single part of our lives being given over to loving people and giving ourselves away because Jesus has given Himself for us. It's not easy. It really isn't. Have a look at verse 9. You're ever thinking, why is this weird stuff about controversies and genealogies here? It's because doing good is hard. Verse 9, Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Strong. I'm convinced that Satan smiles every time Christians are at each other's throats. I'm convinced Satan is just laughing when he watches us just going down a rabbit hole of something that just doesn't matter at all. He doesn't need to convince you that Jesus isn't real if he can get your focus off Jesus. 
He doesn't need to do a hard work of dismantling the church and putting Christianity on the margin if He can just get us all so annoyed and frustrated with each other that we don't bother doing what God called us to do. And so this is why Paul is saying this is so essential. Avoid all that stuff. In context, it was likely this circumcision group who were trying to put extra burdens upon the faith as you try to follow Jesus. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to trace your genealogy through blah, 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 blah. It's not our context, but we can point to a bunch of stuff where we get a little bit heated. There's theology stuff that we get a little bit, you know, edgy around each other. You know, even in this church family, we can get a bit edgy with each other. We might not talk about it. We might dance around it, but it's there. It might just be like the practicality of church and, you know, everyone points to music, but Curtis is awesome, so music's fine. But, you know, there's stuff like, oh, man, 6 p.m. would just be so much better if we, but insert your thing. Oh, just, I just wish everyone would just start doing this better because then we could be, and those things are probably true. You're probably not wrong. But when our attention goes away from the main game, Satan wins. We must bind ourselves in unity. We must make abiding in Jesus first. We must commit to doing good above all else. And if I expand the point, I don't think we just need to think about like controversy and debates. I think we need to guard ourselves better from just general distractions. Most of us aren't like forgetting to do good because we're too busy dismantling theological arguments on Facebook. I mean, some of us might be doing that. But most of us aren't doing good just because we've been lulled into a sense of entertainment oblivion by the latest Netflix binge, and we spend more of our time watching TV and being consumed by that than anything else. I include myself. It's just so easy. It's, just, it's at the tip of a finger. You come at home at the end of a long day, and that's where our attention just keeps drifting back to. I think of just the, the prevalence of our smartphones. Here's a bit of homework that'll terrify you. Go look at the screen time on your phone when you get home. And look at how many hours it tells you you spend on your screen. You're like, oh man, my Bible's on my phone. You ain't on your Bible for 17 hours. Come on. You know, <laughs> go and go and have a look. It's terrifying. There's just so many things that that distract us. We just get so exhausted by all of the things that we're trying to cram into our 24 hours a day, seven days a week, such that we don't have any space to just look at the stranger or even just look at the brother or sister at church and give them the love that they need. There are so many things that aren't clearly controversy, but still distract us. We need to guard our lives better, I think. I totally include myself in that. You don't want to see my screen time. You don't. But my Bible is on my phone, so it's fine. I think the other thing that makes doing good difficult is that the idea of doing good is very captivating. Doesn't it appeal to you to be this, this like, savior? you know, who can, like, swoop in and help people and, you know, get in the nitty-gritty of people's lives. When it comes down to actually doing good, it's not easy because you actually have to deliver and fulfill and be reliable and, and actually step in, and it causes a sacrifice within you to provide for the needs of others. Have a look at verse 14. He says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs. The only way that we can provide for urgent needs is by giving from our overflow, and it hurts when we give, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's whatever. It's not easy. There's a woman who's been coming to church recently who's moved from Russia, and she had to move because she's half Ukrainian, and she's been public about the Ukraine war that she doesn't think it's just, so she feared for her life, and she's got a young daughter. Um, Along the way, her, her husband left her. Um, and she's now stranded in Australia with her daughter, unable to work because of her visa. 
but she loves Jesus, and she's an academic, she's incredibly qualified, could have work in a heartbeat, but just is in this terrible situation. And it has been one of the greatest joys of my ministry to watch God's people just swoop in and care for her, to provide her a place to live. Someone offered them a month of Uber just to make sure her daughter could get to school, even if they weren't living nearby. It's incredible. It is beautiful to look at that from a distance, but to be the person who gives up third bedroom in your home and has this Russian lady who's got Russian-like energy. She's incredible. She just, she's just got this buzz about it. To have her in your home and, an, and a, a nine-year-old living, it's hard. It is really hard to do good. And yet there is nothing more powerful or captivating than someone who genuinely lives like Jesus and is willing to give up of themselves for the case of others. You look at verse 13. It takes a lot of us to help people. Verse 13, do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. First point for the lawyers, you're in the Bible, guys. Well done. You are, you are anointed. We love you, okay? He says, do everything you can. Give whatever you can do, whether it's your time, your money, your energy. These people need your assistance. What I love about this, though, is Apollos, we have him pop up in different parts of Scripture because he is this incredible gung-ho evangelist who's been involved in bringing so many people to Christ. And you might be thinking, why are we focused on doing good so much when there are lost souls out there? Well, it's because through our doing good, we enable people like the Apollos to go and to reach the lost. And so we need to just lean into the lane that God has given us. We need to understand that He's given us different gifts. He's given us different callings. He's placed us in different places in our life. You might be in a season where you are so time poor because your work is demanding, but you have the opportunity to give and to support and to help people. It's incredible. Don't downplay that. You can contribute to the, to the, the life of the gospel coming to the nations by not even going or doing anything, but simply by supporting. Don't downplay that. That's essential. But it's not easy. It's not easy. Wrap it up. I don't think this passage or Titus is about quitting your job and moving to Guatemala. You, don't need, you know how you, sometimes you walk away from a sermon and you're like, oh, well, now I have to quit my job or now I need to find an extra six hours in the week to actually be able to do the thing that the Bible told me. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that you are already in the place that God wants you to be. He's powerful enough to move you to Guatemala if that's where he wants you to go. I'm coming with you because that sounds awesome for a holiday but not for a life. But you, you get this opportunity where you are. If you work long hours, you're in a demanding season of life, just breathe. No one's asking more of you. In fact, all the Scripture is doing is offering you the rest of Jesus. It's not a burden to do good because when we do good from grace, we come alive. That's what we were meant to do. Instead of trying to build an application on top of an application and just trying to implement new things in our lives, just, just breathe and take a step back. Where am I right now? Who, who is my family? Where is my work? What about my friends? What about my church community? How do I just open my eyes and be attentive to what God might have me do in that space already? I think God could bring an incredible revival through our church and through Sydney, not by all of us jumping up and becoming evangelists, by all of us just drawing closer to Him and letting Him transform how we go about the 9 to 5 or the 7 to 10, as some of you might have, that is AM to PM. 
We're not asking you to, to give everything up because God's placed you here on the North Shore. Uh, talking to a young family at 10 a.m. Neutral Bay, we were like, we, we love this area because we get a chance to share Jesus with people who would never otherwise meet it. It's just so dang expensive. We both have to work full-time corporate jobs to be able to afford to rent here. And part of my thinking as I talk to them is I'm like, if that ends up being what you think God's called you to, that's great because you're rubbing shoulders with people who need Jesus at your work. You've got the opportunity to do good because of your corporate work that's incredible. We have to always simply come to Jesus closely and offer him our heart. Do not be unafraid when he tells us to do something drastic and radical, because he might. But to also go, the place that he's placed me is an opportunity to turn my life towards him. So we started with a bit of reflection. I want to finish with a bit of reflection. I want to give you one or two minutes. Again, you can pull out your phone. You can write down some notes. The band will jump up. And they'll just play a little, little bit in the back. They'll lead us in worship in a minute. I just want you to think through, who am I? What does my life look like? How could I draw near to God, abide in Jesus, and overflow in goodness? Take a couple minutes. We'll sing in a minute.